0: Did your parents, or might I say, did you, ever have one of those, I don't know fully what to call it, but one of those almost rhyming catchphrase ways of a one-off way of telling your kids they have to behave? Allow me to give you, maybe the best way to explain this to you is to give you an example. One that I heard a lot, I'm giving you a glimpse into the Hawksworth and the Hewitt household of when I was growing up. One of the ones that I got a lot was this, you get what you get. And you don't throw a fit. Anyone else have any of that as a kid? Or is that just me? We got There might be some heisels out there who might have especially got that or whatever else. I don't know. But that was one that I got a lot. One that I got was or didn't hear as much but would still get was if you don't have anything nice to say. Can you finish it? Don't say anything at all. There's a plenty. I'm sure there's plenty other examples of different ways that maybe you or maybe your parents or your grandparents said these different little one-line quips. I don't want to call them quips because they're important and they're, they're good. But they're like, I always remember them as a kid of saying, that's just a little quip that you tell me just to get me to behave, Dad, stop it. But one, one that I think we all have heard, one that I think we all have heard is what is called the golden rule. You know the golden rule, right? Let's say it. The golden rule is to treat others as you ...would want to be treated. Treat others the way that you want to be treated. That's one that's taught in almost every household. Everywhere, all across America, all across many parts of the world. Treat others the way you want to be treated. It's about as universal as it gets of a good thing to teach our children... ...or for um, us when we are children, even us as adults, need to remember... But what if I told you, there's another one of those little one-liners. We can call them one-liners. Let's stick with that. There's another one of those one-liners that I think, it's not, it's not really too popular as far as I know. I've not heard anyone say it. I say that because I might claim that I created it myself. But I didn't create it myself. In fact, I believe that it is something that the Bible tells us, specifically us as Christians, how we are to live and how we are to treat others. So, copywriting it right off the bat, but knowing it also came from the Bible, cite your sources, I would make the suggestion that even more important than treating others the way that you want to be treated is this. Treat others the way that you have been treated. There's a lot of silence. I hope that that's reverential awe and everyone goes, Whoa! Maybe it's a little more confusion. Treat others the way you have been treated. Allow me to preface and say that this phrase works specifically for the Christian. From what I can tell, it can't be used for anyone who may not be a Christian or whatever else. It's not to single out anybody in this room or listening that may not be a Christian. But I would make the suggestion that the Bible commands us to treat others the way that we have been treated. And I think there's a passage in scripture that helps us to understand this and helps us to see what that looks like practically. And I think that, and what I want to do this morning is I want us to go into this passage of scripture and I want us to learn about what this passage is talking about and learn the truth that we as Christians are supposed to treat others the way that we have been treated. Does that sound like a game plan for today? Great. Love it. And I believe that passage of Scripture is in the book of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 25, we're going to be in verses 31 through 46. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. As you're turning there, allow me to kind of bring you back into this passage. Because if you remember from last week, we actually covered the verses before this passage. And this, this passage is a part of a greater grouping of a section of the book of Matthew, where Jesus himself is teaching a group of Pharisees and Sadducees and individuals that were, that were cautious towards him and even violent towards him and angry towards his teachings. And he was teaching them all over the course of Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25, the concept of what we today call the second coming of Jesus. Matthew 24 and 25 talks about it. Matthew 24 is where Jesus is, where there's the passage where, where Jesus says, neither I nor anybody knows when my return will be, but the Father alone. That's where we get that passage from. And then we get to the, chapter 25, and Jesus splits chapter, and chapter 25 is split into three different sections. They each have three different lessons, of what Jesus is trying to teach us, teach specifically the crowd at the time, but also down to us. Of what the second coming of Jesus Christ is going to look like. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus is coming back. He came back, he was came here at one point in the first coming. And now he's going to come back in the second coming. So if you look at Matthew chapter 25, it's split into these three sections. The first section is the parable of the ten virgins. That teaches us that we as Christians are supposed to be actively waiting expectantly for the return of Jesus. After that, we get to the parable of the talents. We went over that last week. Really quick review. Jesus has given those of us who are called Christians specific opportunities or gifts to be able to use in this time now while he is away. And he gave them to us with the expectation that when he comes back, he will ask what we have done with the opportunities that he has given to us. There will be an account for that. And then we get to verse 31, where beforehand it was parables and kind of this ethereal, a little bit kind of separated out from reality teaching moments. Verse 31 is where we get a little bit more of the specific details of what the second coming of Jesus is going to look like. So that's what's coming for us in verses 31 through 46. And I think that it would be beneficial if we read the passage in its entirety. So, Because I think that when we gather the whole of this story, we can, after we go through the whole story, we can go back and make observations as we make our way through. So if you will allow me, I would like to read the passage for you. This is Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Please read with me. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. To you, as you did to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, and to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So here we get some very vivid details of what the second coming is going to look like. And I love the very first section of it. Verse 31 Verse 31 is one that sticks out for me, and it should stick out for all of us. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. You see, what Jesus is trying to show us through that is that when when we look back at the first coming of Jesus, it's it's fall, which means pretty soon it's going to be Christmas. Some of you weirdos are playing Christmas music already, so let me give you a Christmas lesson. When Jesus came back, or when Jesus first came, the first time, he came in Bethlehem in a manger. Some of you are still laughing by my Christmas joke. (laughs) Forgive me. He came in a manger in a small town, more than likely in a cave, a dingy old cave where there was livestock, livestock, sitting around, no one knew who he was, granted a few shepherds and wise men from the east. He came humbly, he came as a baby, he came softly. Silent night is what we use to describe the first coming of Jesus. And let me tell you that silent night is the exact opposite of how we will describe when Jesus comes a second Jesus isn't coming humbly in the form of a a helpless baby. He's coming as a triumphant king with an army of angels behind him, out of the clouds, riding, if you want a a little bit more of a vivid picture, read Revelation, riding on a horse with fire in his eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth and, and really weird imagery. But it's this incredible, powerful picture of Jesus coming back, not as a humbled baby, but as a conquering king. And he will come back and he will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus isn't coming back just to walk around like he did the first time. He's coming back to become king. And we see what he does with the nations at the time. Verse 32 before him will be gathered all of the nations, and he will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. At this point in time, somewhere in the future, we don't know when exactly this point in the future will be, but we know that when Jesus comes back, he's going to bring himself in and establish himself as the king of the world. And he's going to look at all the other nations in the world, and he's going to gather them all in front of him. Again, how all this stuff works, I have no clue. It doesn't say. I wish it did, but it just doesn't. But he puts all the nations in front of him, and he separates nations. Now, this is not a separation of all Christians throughout all of history. This is specifically unique to the nations at that time, in that place, in the future. And he's going to separate them, not nation by nation, but as peoples. As people. He's going to, at that point... Rid the world, I say rid, that may be too strong of a word, but rid the world of nation states, of, 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 of borders, of territories, of governments. We live in the United States, and I can, I can say that I, I, I feel blessed to live in the United States. I can say that I am happy here. There's some good things and bad things about the country. Anyone can understand that, just like there is with any other country. But there will come a point This point, when there will be no more United States, there will be no more Canada. But they're so nice. There will be no more Mexico. There will be no more Brazil, no more Japan, no more Germany, no more India, no more China, no more nations. But Jesus will come back and rid the world of nations because he has a better way to run the world. And that's not through these different political philosophies that we have. But it is through himself as the divinely ordained king. Jesus will sit on the throne. And he separates all of the peoples. He'll take the multiple groups and he'll make two groups. What's called the sheep and the goats. And notice what he says to the sheep. Verse 34, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God is going to look at these individuals on his right hand, and he's going to look upon them with favor. He calls them sheep in this passage specifically. I don't know about you, but sheep are kind of dumb animals. That doesn't sound very favorable. But regardless, is he is going to look at them with favor and say, you, come into the place that, the Father, that you have inherited, that the Father has prepared for you from the beginning of the world. Before the creation of this world, God the Father has been preparing a place for those that he calls blessed, for those that he puts on his right hand. It begs a question. What's so special about them? He continues. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. So apparently, you you follow this passage, and you're following his logic, and you go, okay, there was a point where Jesus needed help, and they helped him? Is that what's going on here? It's interesting, they respond to him, and they say, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? We didn't see you like that, Jesus. We didn't see you thirsty, or hungry, or naked, or in prison, or sick, or a stranger, or any of these things. We didn't see you in that. What are you talking about? And then Jesus gives us a truly statement. It's a phrase I heard from Another Christian, another gentleman. Whenever the Bible, whenever Jesus says truly, you better listen. Whenever Jesus says truly, I say to you, that's an important point. That's an emphatic statement. It's in cap locks. It's got exclamation points. It's in bold. It's underlined. Whatever you want to do. It's an important part of that section where he says, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it me. Jesus draws a connection between people caring for what he calls the least of these. People caring for the least of these and caring for him. It's an interesting connection, and it forces us to reconsider what we do and how we care for people. But then we get to the next section, because while he's talking to the right side, there's still this left side and he says to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then he says the same thing. There's a lot of repetition in this passage. And when there's repetition, they don't that's not an accident in scripture. When there's repetition, there is power in the repeated words. So whenever you see repeated words in the Bible within a passage, you know that there's power in what The author is trying to communicate. He says the same things. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Those on his left are obviously at this point concerned and surprised. Notice that both of the groups are surprised. And they say, well, When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? They're saying, what are you talking about? We didn't see you this way. When would we have seen you in this way? And Jesus responds to them the same way he responded to the group on his right. Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's a very real and difficult thing to read. It seems very graphic. It seems very harsh. It seems very rough. let me back up a little bit, because they both, Jesus' emphasis here is on what he calls the least of these. That's the emphasis in this passage. So who are the least of these? Who are they? Well, some of them we, most of them I think we can understand quite well. The hungry, the thirsty, and the naked all have to do with individuals who do not have the ability to have some of their most basic needs met. We all need food. We all need water. We all need clothing. I mean, it's, you, you were outside. It's raining. It's cold. We all need warmth. We all need our basic needs fulfilled. And Jesus knew that. And so here he's talking about those who can't even fulfill their most basic of needs. Those are in such severe difficulties in life, that they can't even buy enough food for themselves and their family, enough water for themselves and their family, enough clothes for themselves or their family. These are the least of these. Then we get to another one, the stranger. Now, the stranger is one that I personally, I, I, I heard that and I said, okay, well, what, is, what does a stranger mean here? What's that mean? Is that just, you know, oh, there's someone out there. I don't know you. You're a stranger. I say, hi, you're no longer a stranger. Well, I, I, did, I did some digging into this word and into what he was trying to discern by the word stranger. And all throughout the New Testament and even in the Old Testament, There is many parts where the word stranger is used, but it it, it is meant to communicate something more than stranger. In fact, it seems as if the word stranger is oftentimes used to communicate the word foreigner. The foreigner. Or what we might call today, the immigrant. Pause. Pause. Because I, I say pause, because I think that the conversation of the foreigner or the immigrant is, at least in our current context, a very lively conversation. It's a very hot topic, and I want I want it to, to made specifically clear. There's a lot of baggage with in reference to immigration, immigrants, and different things like that. And a lot of that baggage comes from political baggage. There's a lot of political conversation that is around this topic. I can see everyone's shoulders scrunching up right now. A lot of baggage there, and that's that's okay. But I want, I want us all for a moment to try to Read the Bible for what it's saying. I'm not here to advocate any sort of my own political opinions or views or whatever. That's not, this is not the place for that. And I'm aware of that. And I'm not doing that. But what I want you to do, and what I challenge myself to do, is to, quite frankly, read the Bible the way that Jesus wants us to read it, and to take for a moment the, the political feelings and and emotions that we have, and put them to the side for a moment. Allow yourself to do that, please. Because I think that many times when we allow our political presuppositions, our political feelings to get in the way of reading Scripture is when we are being unfaithful to what the Bible tells us to do. And, the, and, and what the Scripture tells us to do oftentimes is what gets burned the most. So allow me to do that. We'll, we'll keep talking about this, but just, I, I just wanted to mention that really quick where we have the hungry, we have the thirsty, we have the naked, we have the stranger, we have the sick, and we have the one in prison. These are individuals that don't have the ability to take care of themselves. Again, the least of these. Individuals that are either so sick that they can't even work or they're so or they're in prison and so they have no ability to get out and to take care of themselves because they're paying for a crime. These aren't these aren't your quote-unquote, pretty people. These are people that have been through difficult times, difficult decisions, trials that many of us don't fully understand. And these are the poor, the homeless, the stranger, the disease-ridden, the criminal. These are the least of these this is the group of people that God expects us, expects the believer in him to care for. But I want to make, I want to make a distinction here. And, and as we look at this list of the least of these, hungry, thirsty, naked, stranger, sick, in prison, this is the list that Jesus gives us every single one of these things Jesus is telling us to care for practically physically but what we can oftentimes forget in this conversation is just as Jesus tells us to care for these people physically so too has god taken care of us spiritually allow me to make that dis- allow me to explain that for a moment because in reality all of, any of us in this room Maybe not physically, but spiritually, I would consider the least of these. And the reason for that is because of the fact that we are all spiritually hungry without the ability to be satisfied on our own, spiritually thirsty without the ability to be quenched properly, spiritually naked and feeling the shame of our guilt over us, spiritually in prison and unable to escape, spiritually sick with the worst disease that this world can ever imagine. And all of those things come back to one grim, dark truth. And that is the reality that you and I are all sinners. We all have sin, this evil, this this wickedness that relies in all of us. These are this is the reason why we are all hungry and unable to be satisfied. We are all thirsty and unable to be quenched. And so, as Jesus is telling us, care for these people physically. Jesus has already cared for us in these ways spiritually. Through his own salvation message offered to us by his sacrifice on the cross to pay for the forgiveness of your sins and for mine. We are spiritually hungry. Jesus Jesus' salvation satisfies that. We're spiritually thirsty. Jesus' salvation quenches our thirst. We are spiritually naked and shame-filled because of the guilt of our sin. Jesus clothes us and removes that shame and puts it on himself. We are spiritually strangers from his kingdom, but he freely welcomes us into the kingdom of God, and he makes us a part of his family. We are spiritually sick with the disease of sin that we cannot cure. And Jesus cures us. We are spiritually in our own prison made by our own sin. And Jesus removes us from the prison that we manufacture because of our own sin. All of the least of these, all of the practical issues here... We have been shown how to care for that because Jesus did that for us. Treat others the way that you have already been treated. That is the message of this passage. It all comes back to the gospel that Jesus freely offers us. And when we get to a point where we try to imagine the most reckless, the most powerful, the most beautiful love that Jesus has offered us through the gospel, there is no excuse for our responsibility to love others in that same way. We've been given the instruction manual. That instruction manual is the gospel found in God's word. And thus, it gives us the responsibility to care for the least of these physically in the same way that Jesus cared for us spiritually, knowing that when we give food to the hungry, knowing that when we give water to the thirsty, knowing that when we give clothing to the naked, knowing that when we visit the sick and visit the one in prison and welcome in the stranger... We are showing them not just a physical love, but a spiritual love that comes from God. Where we say, just as God did this to me, I'm doing this to you. Because I love you. Because God showed me how to love you. Because he loved me first. Treat others the way that you have been treated by God. With this, I think there comes much room for, for application. And allow me to mention a few application points. Number First, first point is that many different times or, or different people have been able to use this passage as an example to suggest that we can earn our salvation by caring for people. If I just care for enough people, then I'm going to be saved and I'll be on the right side. I'll be the sheep. I'll be the righteous. That's not what this passage is saying. Notice again the surprise in both the righteous and the wicked. They're both surprised but for opposite reasons. The righteous is surprised because he's saying, this is the marker? This is so normal. An identifying mark of somebody who has the love of God is that they will use that love and share it with others. Parable of the talent. But the wicked themselves, they're surprised, but for a different reason. They're saying, really, that's, that's how I was supposed to be saved? If I just cared for more people, I would have been saved? Well, or if, if I would have cared for you, I would have been saved? Well, well I didn't have the opportunity to do that. They've got it—they're thinking completely wrong. Their thinking is completely misguided. Because they're, again, having this idea that if they would have just done more, they would have been on the right hand of God. But that's not what God is showing because the Bible teaches us that works are not the thing that earns us salvation, but works are evidence of a past salvation that was accomplished through grace alone, fully believing in Jesus as a son of God, repenting of our sins and believing in his death to forgive us of our sins. That is salvation. The works come after the salvation. They are an evidence that we have the love of God in us because we love others in that way. And that is the grand question I have for you. The most important question I have for you this morning. Is that is there this love of God in you that makes you want to love the least of these? The way that God loved you. Is there? Is that in you? Do you have that desire? Again, it's a question I can't answer, answer for you. That's one that you get to bring to the Father. The second one that I want to say is, is this, and this is an interesting point, and I think one that we can keep in balance, is when we approach this topic of caring for the least of these, you know, the poor, and, and, and the diseased, and, and the foreigner, and all that different stuff, I've, I've heard this point brought up not as a we shouldn't, but as a we have to be cautious of how we treat or take care of the poor. And and that that point is oftentimes where we are cautious of saying, I don't necessarily want them to want to give a a poor person money or resources or whatever, and they use it for wrong purposes. You know, I don't want them to take advantage of the resources I give them, the good desire that I have to love them, and then they use those resources for evil purposes. You know, you give a homeless guy in the street a $20 bill, and what's he going to do with it? We don't know. We don't know that. And I think that at the same time while that's a valid reason to be cautious about the ways that we can care for the poor and there is stewardship there and that's important and that's crucial what i think can happen is we can use sometimes we can use that and i i say i perhaps i say we because i've done this and i don't think i'm the only person that has ever done this but we we can use that sometimes to say well then, you know, I see, a, I see an indiv- a poor person on the street. Well, then I'm not going to care for them because I don't know how to, what they're going to do with it. I don't know what they're going to do with anything that I give them. And I think there's a balancing act we have to have with this because I think the opposite side of that is, is again, let's go back to the gospel. Let's go back to the love that God shows us. And let's go back to the fact that there are many times when you and I are given gifts and love from God. But we ourselves, we have at different points. Haven't we taken advantage of the love that God gives us, of the gifts that God gives us, and we can sometimes use it for sinful purposes? Do we not? Do Have we done that before? I know that I have. And while I'm not, I, while again, I'm not falling one's way or the other on this conversation, I think there's a balancing act. And I think that if we fall too hard on one side, we, we miss out on the opportunity we have to care for the least of these. And so a practical thing that I've been trying to think of in my own mind is, you know, I, I don't know about you, but it seems like as I've been driving around Battle Creek, there's a lot more individuals with the cardboard signs up, you know, hungry, need help, God bless, those sorts of things. You know, I've been seeing a lot of those, and I'm, I'm, I'm torn just like anybody else's. How do I care for that person? Are they being honest? Who knows? But I might bring up the suggestion of, you know, maybe we, they may be asking for money, but what we can do to say, here's something I can do to help you is keeping, you know, maybe a, a box of granola bars in your car. You see an individual, you say, here, I can't give you cash, but I have food. It's a practical way to help somebody. And that puts it in their corner, because then they can say, okay, I'll take this if I need it, but if they don't want that then okay. It's just a random thought. It's one that I've been thinking in my own mind as well. But it does keep coming back to caring for the least of these the way that God has cared for us. And there's a third point of application I have, because some of you may be saying, okay, care for the least of these, we got to do that. What's a way that I can practically do that today? What's a way that I can do that today? right now, when I leave this church, or whenever I come to church, how can I care for the least of these? I'm glad you asked, because I have an individual um, who would like to come up to the platform and share with you a little bit of a way that you can, right now, today, care for the least of these. So I'm going to invite a young, a young man named Isaiah Coster up to the platform. There he is. He's coming. And he's going to come on up here, and I'm just going to ask him a number of questions because him and his older sister, Summer, Summer would have been here as well, but she was at a dog show, I think is what it was, and so be with her in that. Um, Be with her in prayer in that. But they both came to me a couple weeks ago with a really great way. Oh, there you are. A really great way of how you and I very practically can care for the least of these. And so I'm going to talk with Isaiah a little bit about that and teach you of ways that you can care for the least of these. So Isaiah, what exactly was this idea that you and Summer gave to me a few weeks ago?
1: Well, the idea was to help other people. So we were throwing out ideas about how can we help. So uh, also getting the youth group involved too. So one of the ideas that we was uh, is to help the Haven of Rest. Uh, to deal with the homeless people. So one of the ideas was that we can do a uh, challenge with the youth group to help raise raise funds for them. Yeah. So
0: So you're saying there's this sort of fundraiser happening. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow, isn't that creative. There's this sort of fundraiser that's happening um, in the youth group, and it's a challenge of some sort to see who can raise the most fun. So let me ask, why Why did you and Summer decide you wanted to bring this idea to me? Why did you guys want you to do this?
1: Well, it's also, uh, like you were saying, it's our Christian duty to help others who are uh, less fortunate and to help uh, share the love of Christ. So we were thinking, well, it's, it's a lot easier to sit there and say it. So uh, it's guys versus girls. And uh, we are raising hygiene products.
0: Okay, so, so it's, a pr- it's a competition, from what I'm hearing, between guys and girls, and they can donate specifically hygiene products to people. Can you get, do you have a list of just some general things that people can donate?
1: Uh, so I'm just going to list them off real quick. This is for boys, what, uh, what we're trying to raise for boys. So it's toothbrush, toothpaste, combs, body wash, hair wash, washcloths, deodorant, hand sanitizer, and Q-tips. Okay. And this is what uh, we're trying to raise for the girls. Toothbrush, toothpaste, hairbrush, combs, pads, tampons, washcloths, deodorant, Q-tips, hair wash, body wash, and hand sanitizer.
0: Okay, so those are things that people can donate. Does that mean that girls can only donate the things on the girls' list or guys can only donate the things on the guys' list? Uh, no,
1: this is just what the guys need and what the girls need.
0: Okay, so anybody can give any of those different things. Yes, and can people donate money as well?
1: Uh, yes, if they want to, that will be put towards, uh, so we will take that money and we'll go out to stores and what we uh, already don't have enough of, we'll buy that.
0: Okay, so. gotcha. And where will these, dro- Where would if people were to bring in things to donate, where would they drop them off at?
1: Uh, you can drop them off at Tubbs by Pres- Pastor Preston's office, they'll be labeled guys and girls, mm-hmm.
0: so... So you're telling me it is a competition, and the boys are trying to beat the girls, or the girls are trying to beat the boys on who can donate the most stuff, right? Who's currently winning right now?
1: Uh, the guys are currently winning.
0: The guys are currently winning. And, ha- and are there more guys in the youth group or girls?
1: Uh, there are definitely more girls.
0: So there are more girls in the youth group, but the guys are kicking butt is what I'm hearing. Yes. There you go. I just wanted to hear that. And so so how long will this donation project go for? How long can people do this?
1: Well, uh, we already are starting to accept donations. It goes to October 30th. That's the limit. And uh, it, there may be something going on in November too. So.
0: Gotcha. So there may be more opportunities past October 30th, yes. but we don't fully know yet, and we're yes. still trying to work those mm-hmm. out. So stay tuned?
1: Yes. Okay,
0: great. Thank you, Isaiah. Can we give Isaiah a round of applause? And Summer as well. <laughs> Thanks. This was an idea that Isaiah and Summer gave to me. And this was completely from them, and in their own fashion, they said, Preston, we need to do something, in their own unique coster fashion, and I love it. And so that's a way that you, right now, can care for the least of these. That's a way that you, right now, can love individuals the same way that God has loved you. And please continue to be in prayer. We're looking for more ways maybe to get connected with the Haven. We're still trying to work out details on that, but I ask for your prayer in that and to stay tuned as well because we may have more opportunities coming up in the future, whether it's through donation projects or whatever else. We did one of these last year as well with with Halo running that one, and so we hope to do many more of these, but these are ways, and I'm almost done here, these are ways that you can love people the way that you have already been loved. You've been shown how to love people. You've been shown how to treat people. And that is to treat people the same way that God treated you. He showed you that when he saved you. And now the question is, are you going to treat others the way that you have been treated?